Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. I had actually prepared for 17 through 25, um, but uh, it's actually 17 through 24, so I over-prepared. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed by the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the prophet Isaiah tells us, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Amen. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. I've been gone from Christ Church. This is actually my home church. I've been gone for two months. Uh, I have a a dear friend, a fellow PCA pastor, David Bradshaw, up at uh, Grace Community up in Yulee. It's up near Fernandina, and uh, he's also on sabbatical. This seems to be the summer of sabbaticals. And uh, and so I preached for six consecutive weeks up at uh, Grace Community. Um, and then the last two weeks, uh, some travel and things like that. And then I'm going to be gone next week, flying up to New York City to visit family. It's just a whirlwind. The summer has been um, already quite busy. Um, last week, uh, this past week, uh, last Sunday, I was actually in the Orlando area. And uh, the reason why I was there was there was a teacher's conference that um, my wife Lisa was Um, slated to attend a conference that was lasting three days. And so um, there were a number of teachers from her school that were going down to partake of this um, conference. And this was in Orlando in the the SeaWorld area uh, over at the Orange County Convention Center. I believe that's what it's called. And um, and so I thought I would I would tag along. I would go. I would uh, I would have some peace and quiet in the hotel room as as uh, as my wife was at the uh, convention and um, I had projects to work on. I had a sermon to write. There was lots to do. So I figured, use my time wisely. I'll just stay 
hold up in the in the hotel room for a while, and 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 it'll you know get a lot accomplished. Um, but then quickly found out that in order to park at the at the convention center, it costs twenty dollars a day. Um, teachers don't make money; it's not what we're in it for. So. Um, my wife and, and the teachers that were a part of this convention said, hey, Paul, would you mind acting as our Uber? Would you mind dropping us off uh, in the morning and then picking us up in the afternoon? And then, oh, and by the way, if you can during the day pick out a nice place to have dinner in the evening, then you can drive us there as well. And of course, of course, I said yes. I would love to do that. And so I did a lot of driving in Orlando. And if you haven't been to Orlando, or if it's been a long time, there are a lot of people there. Um, it is, um, it's quite, um, there's many more people than the roads can actually sustain. The, the, there's a lot of traffic. It seems to be perpetual. Next week, I'm flying to New York City, and that will actually be a respite from the Orlando traffic. And um, the lines on the roads don't mean anything in Orlando, just letting you know. The traffic lights, even the ones with the little camera on top, don't mean anything. Um, the signs that say yield and stop don't mean anything. And, um, and it was only by the grace of God and quick reflexes that I was able to survive the chaos. Uh, cars just coming over. I mean, no turn signal, nothing to let me know that that was their intention. Um, and, and so I'm there, you know, doing the best I can, trying to, you know, keep composed, uh, because after all, it's not just me in the vehicle, now I've got witnesses. And so uh, it's, it was one of those things where um, I'm trying to keep composure, trying to keep proper decorum, and, uh, and all along I'm thinking to myself, this is not how we learn to drive. We've all taken the classes. We studied the book. We took safety classes. This isn't how we're supposed to drive. And then I got to thinking, well, maybe perhaps, since there are a lot of tourists flying in from all over the world to pay homage to the mouse, maybe perhaps uh, it was one of those things where maybe they just drive differently where they're from. And then I was like, no, that's impossible. They can't all be tourists. Certainly, there are people who know better. And what happens is, is in the midst of all that, you begin to emulate some of the erratic driving that's surrounding you, because that's the only way you're going to survive. And what happened was I found myself quickly getting sucked into some of that erratic driving, thinking to myself, this isn't how I was learned, this isn't how I was taught, and yet in order to survive, this is what I have to do in order to make it. That that refrain of, this isn't how we were taught, this isn't how we learned. Be careful not to get sucked into what's going on around you. Keep composure. Keep your wits about you. This is what the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesians. Because what's happening is they're taking on mannerisms. He's concerned that they're taking on mannerisms that are not how they learned. Now, we have to remember that the Apostle Paul is writing this from imprisonment. He's on house arrest in Rome. And so he's going to use very vivid imagery and very vivid descriptors to try to convey the seriousness of what's being, of, of, of the topic of what's being said here. And the reason is because he's on house arrest. 
He doesn't know if he's going to be able to see them again and have face-to-face conversations. So when he writes this letter, he writes this letter with very vivid descriptors to remind them of the gospel, to remind them of the way they've been taught, to remind them of the life that's before them because of the life that's been given by Jesus. And so what happens is, through that, he reminds the Ephesian church a number of things. First thing is this. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, what does that mean, no longer walk as the Gentiles do? And he proceeds to kind of flush it out a little bit. He talks about futility in their minds, darkening in their understanding, alienated from a life of God because of ignorance. So we have minds, we have understanding, we have ignorance. What's he talking about? How we think. He's talking about how the Ephesians are thinking. Now, if we go back to the fall, back in Genesis 2 and 3, we're reminded that the Lord told Adam and Eve, you can partake of any tree in the garden except the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. And what happens is, is you know how the story unfolds, you know how the narrative unfolds, They don't pay attention to the Lord's commands. They go ahead and partake because of the uh, deceit that was laid before them. And what they did was they went ahead and partook. And all of a sudden, their minds were opened in capacities that they really should not have been open to. And then we have these refrains throughout Scripture about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's very important in Scripture, and it was very important in Judaism for people to understand that the renewing of the mind was very important. Because when, when, when the fall happened, I mean, the fall, it was, to, it was total fall. It was total depravity in every way, in every, in every shape, in every form, but also including the mind. So what the Apostle Paul is trying to say is, listen, by virtue of sin, we don't even think right. Because the way we think is the way we act. And so what we need to do is we need to remember and we need to recall what it is that Jesus has done for us, what it is that he's accomplished, what it is that that he has secured on our behalf so that we can rest in that grace, so we can rest in that finished work of Jesus. But through that, that our minds would be transformed and that through our minds being transformed, also how we deal with each other would also be transformed. Because remember, back in the garden, back in Genesis 3, there's alienation from God, but there's also alienation that people have with each other. I mean, all you have to do is look at the account of Cain and Abel and Noah and his sons, and there's all kinds of strife. There's all kinds of animosity. There's all kinds of, of backbiting. I mean, the, the family unit had, had been just, it had just been destroyed, And so what happens is because of this destruction of community, what are we called to do? Be a covenant people. Be in church. Be a a community that gathers together. Be of like mind. Be of like spirit. The very thing that was destroyed, now we're being brought together. But why? Because of the person and work of Jesus, of what he's accomplished. And so... This idea of, of, you know, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, it's, it's not just in Ephesians things. If we look at Romans, for although they, although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but, he became, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
And then even in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each, uh, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. And then there's this call for understanding, even back in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then we also have this hardness of heart, this callousness. Now, we see this imagery pretty vividly portrayed even throughout the pages of the Old Testament where we would see how the text is, particularly, particularly in, in Moses's, in, in, in the Pentateuch, in Moses' writings where, you know, the, the heart of Pharaoh would be hardened. And, it's, and, and, and what we see here is like, for example, in Mark 3, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, is it lawful? on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around them uh, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Much of the Apostle Paul's leaning background in this text really comes from the Valley of Dry Bones back in Ezekiel. And the reason why this is important is because the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to the Ephesians that they're, they're, they're like the walking dead. There's, there's the gospel that brings life, that it transforms hearts and minds. But it's almost like they're the living dead. And the Apostle Paul is giving this command that the Gentiles are the, living, are the living dead, but he's actually giving this command to the Ephesian Christians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, We exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, he talks about putting on and putting off. He talks about walking. He uses very demonstrative images to try to get the Ephesians to understand the importance, severity. And not just that, but also to explain that the Christian life is about honoring God and glorifying and enjoying Him forever. That there's a progression to the Christian life. It's not something that just kind of happens and then remains stagnant. But then what happens is, is as we come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and as we're transformed by the power of the gospel, and we're renewed in our minds, and our hearts are transformed, then the community is restored as well. If we keep going, it, the Apostle Paul then turns his attention in verses 20 and 21, and he says this, But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, let's do this. In order to understand this particular section, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you turn back. If you have your Bibles, you can do that. If not, you can get your phones out and open the Bible app and go to Acts, the end of chapter 18, okay? Acts, end of 18. 
Now, the reason why I'm having you go to Acts, the end of 18, and we'll read certain sections out of 18, 19, and 20, this is part of Paul's third missionary journey. This is when he is in Ephesus. And this will make understanding what he means here perhaps a little bit more, more clear. So in chapter uh, 18, verses 24 through 28, Luke writes this in Acts. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and became fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And then it says here that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted Jews in public, showing the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So we have that part. Now let's go to 19, verses 8 through 10. Chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And Paul, it says he, this is a reference to Paul. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we have that part. Now let's go to Acts 20, verses 18 through 21. And when they came to him, they said to him, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house? And then I'll, I'll continue on to the 21st verse. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Apostle Paul writes from his Roman house arrest, did you learn the gospel? What is the answer based on the witness of the book of Acts? The answer is yes. The Ephesians learned the gospel. The apostle Paul was faithful in teaching the gospel. He was there for two years in the hall of Tyrannus teaching on a daily basis. So the answer is yes. And in addition to using the imagery, the vivid imagery that he, that he does with walking and putting on and putting off, the Apostle Paul is also excellent at taking markers of culture within Ephesus and even speaking to that. You'll see when you get to chapter 5, um, when we get to the text about husbands and wives and Christ and the church, you'll see that there is a reference to, uh, to the idea of nurturing that Christ nurtures the church. Back in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple of Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. And this was one of, the, one of the grand temples. And within the temple, the centerpiece of the temple was this great big sculpture to Diana. 
And within the temple, there were all these inscriptions. And one of the inscriptions was nurturing. So very often what the Apostle Paul will do is he will take certain cultural markers, capture those cultural markers, but use them in gospel teaching, use them for gospel purposes. And so when we see here and in, in the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians that that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus, what are some of these teachings about D, uh, Jesus? Matthew 11, verses 28 through 29. How about this? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Philippians, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. And then 1 Peter, again, chapter 2, verse 21. For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our Savior has given us examples. Clear teaching about the way we are to respond to each other, the way we're to commune together. And in order to do that, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The gospel has to grip us in our minds and in our hearts. And through that, the community is strengthened, the community is bolstered in the truth and promise of the gospel. And in that, our Savior is honored and glorified. So yes, the Ephesians did learn. They did know the gospel. But it doesn't end there. Third and last point is this. In verses 22 through 24, the Apostle Paul says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former uh, manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the Apostle Paul doesn't tell the Ephesian church just what not to do but also tells the Ephesian church what to do and what that looks like. So we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's Romans 6. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. So there's this reminder, there's this admonition by the Apostle Paul to put off the old self, to forsake the ways of old, and to put on the new self, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now remember, who's his audience here? It's the church at Ephesus. Now, it's very likely when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter that it wasn't just one church in mind, but it was a letter that was circulated amongst a number of churches within the region. But the message is still the same. 
In fact, if you look at Ephesians and you compare it with Colossians, some of the grammar structure is virtually identical because it was during his house arrest in Rome that he likely wrote both, both epistles. And so this warning, this, this admonition to put off the old self and to be renewed by the spirit of the minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so lastly, the question is, why? What is this all about? And I hearken back to my opening prayer out of Isaiah. Because surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Dear ones, this is what brings us fellowship with a holy God and with one another. So when we're called to put off the old self, and to put on the new, to put on that which is in Christ, secured in Christ Jesus. That's why it's the love of God given to us in the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are reminded again, and we need to be reminded of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. Father, that we've been saved by your grace, and it's been solely by your grace, lest any of us should boast that it was our own doing. And Father, in that, rest in the finished, perfect work of Jesus. And Father, to take on that attitude in mind, in action, in spirit. To wash one another's feet. To care for each other. To think of the examples that have been left for us by Jesus. So that the community can care for each other, love each other, all the more until the Lord returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.